Let's turn to the scriptures now and to the gospel according to Matthew this evening and to Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to read together a little string of parables that Jesus told in this chapter. So that's Matthew chapter 13, and we'll read verses 44 to the end of verse 52. So the 13th chapter, beginning at the 44th verse, and this is God's word to us. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. Amen. We thank God for this reading from his word. Let's bow for just a moment's prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, we praise you as the ancient of days. We thank you that your heavenly throne forever stands. Lord, from that high and lifted up and exalted throne, please address us now. And so we ask that the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of each one of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, let me begin by telling you a story all about buried treasure. I'll take you back to just over a century ago to a summer's day in the year 1912. We're in London and workmen were using pickaxes to excavate a cellar on Cheapside in the city of London, just in the heart of the financial centre of the great city. And there, whilst they were doing their hard work, they made a truly extraordinary discovery. They unearthed a buried wooden chest containing an absolute treasure trove of nearly 500 objects, rings, necklaces, 
jewels, and a unique watch set inside a huge emerald. They had just stumbled across the stock of a 17th century English goldsmith. And what they found remains the world's largest and most exquisite cache of Jacobean and Elizabethan jewellery. There were all sorts of things, emeralds, diamonds, rubies, sapphires, and they stuffed the lot into pockets and hats, knotted handkerchiefs. They took it all away and they brought it to a man called Stony Jack Lawrence, a dealer in things like that who acquired objects from museums and who paid cash without asking any awkward questions about the provenance of interesting finds. It's called the Cheap Side Hoard, and some of it is on permanent display in the Museum of London, just a short walk away from where it was found. Hidden treasure, priceless in value, and now available for all to see and marvel at it. I hope that sets the stage for us to be able to think together about the treasure of the gospel. And we'll do it by way of three simple questions. First of all, what is this treasure? Secondly, how do you get it? And finally, why does it matter? So what sort of treasure is this when we speak about the treasure of the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, if you look in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, it tells us that this treasure is the kingdom of heaven. And what's it mean by saying that it's the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's telling us that being in Jesus's kingdom and living under his rule as our king, that thing is the priceless treasure. Nothing at all compares to it. And we can say a few things about the sort of treasure that it is by thinking about the parables that Jesus told. Because first of all, he wants us to know that the treasure that we're talking about here is life-changing. It is life-changing in its value. And that's the treasure in the first parable. It's that treasure buried in the field. And once you find it, if you get your hands on it, things in this life, they will never, ever be the same again. Imagine the life-changing discovery that Jesus spoke about in this parable. One day, a man was going through the field and he just happens to stumble on it. He might have been a hired worker digging away, or maybe he was just walking through the field and he saw something glistening down there in the dust. Regardless, he unearths it and he realizes that this treasure is so valuable that this is potentially a life-changing discovery. What was the treasure doing there? Well, in the days before vaults, this sort of thing was not at all uncommon. In times of war, or out of fear of theft, people would hide all sorts of valuable things simply by burying them. 
There are all sorts of possible, plausible scenarios that might account for how the treasure had been lost in Jesus' parable. Now, back to the cheapside hoard, because that's certainly the case when it comes to that, because no one knows exactly how it was lost. We can date the items in it, and we know that it was hidden sometime before the start of the English Civil War, and sometime prior to the Great Fire of London in 1666. 20 of the most turbulent years of British history. For whatever reason, someone decided to bury it down in the basement and then never came back to reclaim it. Well, if you discover precious treasure like that, or treasure like what's described in Jesus' parable, if you can secure it, well, then life will never be the same again. And so it is with the kingdom of heaven. It is a treasure of incalculable value, both in this life and for the life to come in eternity. It is a treasure of life-changing value. But here's another way to think about what this treasure is like, this treasure of the kingdom of heaven. It is life-changing. Things will never be the same again if you get your hands on it. But it is also a treasure of perfect beauty. I think that's really the point of the second parable that Jesus tells here when he speaks about this merchant who is out in search of fine pearls. Now, this parable was told long before the creation of spherical cultured pearls in the early 1900s. In the ancient world, natural pearls would have come largely from the Persian Gulf, and they were very rare, and some of them were fabulously expensive. Cleopatra reputedly had a pearl so large that according to economic historians, if you were to value it in today's money, the value of it would be something like 15 million pounds for the one pearl. Well, back in this parable here, the merchant's eye has been trained through experience to know what exactly it is that makes a pearl valuable. He knows all about them. He knows about their shape and luster and the importance of the hue of color that each one of these unique pearls have. And one day, as he goes about his work, he discovers a pearl which is the most perfect pearl imaginable. It's one which is so beautiful that all his other fine pearls, they simply cannot compare to it for beauty. And so it is with the treasure of the kingdom. When we see it with the eye of faith, we realize that it is more beautiful, satisfying, and fulfilling than anything else that this world can offer. I wonder if you've ever thought about the gospel that way, because I imagine often we're used to thinking that the gospel is good and that the gospel is something which is true. But that triad of good, beautiful, is, and good and true is always tied up with also what is beautiful. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is like that. It is a thing of supreme beauty. 
So it's got life-changing value. Get the treasure, everything will change. It's also treasure of the most deeply satisfying nature because it is so beautiful. One last way to describe it. On in here to verse 51 and following. And here it's to note that Jesus says this treasure, strangely, is brought out by scribes, by the scribes of the kingdom. In verse 51, Jesus asks the disciples if they've understood what he's just told them in these parables. And although they haven't understood it all, they have understood it nonetheless. And in response, Jesus calls them scribes, scribes who have been trained for the kingdom. Now, what does Jesus mean when he describes them as scribes? Well, a scribe was someone who was trained to teach the law of God. And the apostles, the disciples here, were trained by the Lord Jesus how to teach the word of God. So verse 52 actually gives us an incredible picture of what the New Testament is, because the New Testament is made up with the books which were written by these spirit-inspired scribes of the kingdom. We're in Matthew's Gospel. And what is Matthew doing as he writes his Gospel record for us? Well, think about it in the terms of what Jesus describes here. Think of Matthew as he writes, according to this picture of a wealthy man who unlocks a storeroom in his house and who brings out his wealth in order to distribute it and share it around. As Matthew writes, as he writes for us, he is sharing the riches that are found in Jesus the King. And notice another little unique characteristic of this treasure which is brought out. According to verse 52, the treasure is simultaneously old and new. All that was hidden in the Old Testament, in the promises and the types and the shadows, has come to a wonderful new fulfillment in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The scribe trained to teach about the kingdom is bringing out treasures, and the treasure that he brings out is old, because this has been spoken about right from the book of Genesis, and it's new, because in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has come near. And Matthew is the perfect example of all of this because his gospel, more than any of the other gospels, is one which is all about the fulfillment of what the Old Testament promised in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's the treasure that we're thinking about, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of the kingdom. No value can be placed upon it. It is of infinite worth. It is something of soul-satisfying beauty, and it's brought out through the scriptures. It's brought out through what the writers of the Bible have left for us, which draws out all these treasures simultaneously old and new. Well, if that's what the treasure is, how do you get it? How do you get your hands on it? Now, the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl are in many ways very similar. You get the way in which they share a common storyline. 
But there is a significant difference between them. In the first parable, the parable with the treasure hidden in the field, the man finds it almost by accident. He wasn't some modern-day treasure hunter out there armed with his metal detector, carrying his shovel, hoping that he'll be able to find buried treasure and bring it up. It seems that he was just going about his business. He might have been brought in as a contractor to do some plowing in the field, or perhaps maybe he was just walking across the field on one of the byways. He wasn't looking for it. He just seemed to stumble on it. Whereas in the second parable, the merchant has a different outlook. Because with the merchant, there's an intentionality about his quest. It's as if he's been on a long-term search that's eventually led him to this most beautiful thing. And that's interesting because I think the two parables taken together, they teach us a lot about the different ways in which people discover the treasure of the kingdom of God. Your story here this evening might be something like the man in the field. There you were, just going about life as normal, and then suddenly God did something which grabbed your attention. Perhaps someone said something, or something happened in your own circumstances, and almost as it were, out of the blue, your eyes were opened to see, this is real treasure. This is treasure which will change everything. This is treasure that I must have. But that's not the only way in which God opens eyes. Because not everyone's story of conversion is like the man walking through the field. Some people find the treasure in a different way. The Holy Spirit works in different people's lives in different ways, different paths that can lead to the same place. Because some people find their experience to be much more like the merchant. Because you might be the sort of person who has had questions for a long period of time. You've been searching. You've been moved along in that quest by an awareness that there is something in your life which is missing. Something that you know you don't have, but you're not sure exactly what it is. Some people find the treasure almost in a moment. Other people find it after a long search. But here's what they have in common. To receive this treasure, you need to prize it more than anything else in this world. Now, the value of this treasure wasn't immediately obvious to onlookers. To many people, the treasure was hidden. So it was and it is with the true value of the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' own day, people by and large hadn't seen the significance of his kingdom. Even though he came proclaiming it, the treasure was hidden. And so it is today. There are many people around us who have no idea at all of the treasure that's contained in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, even though it's hidden, it remains treasure nonetheless. And in these twin parables, 
both individuals immediately recognized something of true and lasting value in what they discovered. And in particular, they see its relative value. The man who finds the buried treasure knows that what's buried in the hoard is far more valuable than the field in which it's buried. He knows that what is buried there is worth far more than everything else that he possessed. Nothing in this life came close to matching the value of that treasure. And that's why he is prepared to give up everything else in order to obtain it. Can you imagine how that man might have been misunderstood by his friends? They might have said to him, why are you so obsessed with that one field in particular? If you want to buy land, why don't you start with something that's more easy for you to afford? Why are you going to go to try to buy a field, which means that you have to sell absolutely everything else in order to get it? They didn't realize what the treasure was worth, but the man went ahead with it because he knew its worth. In particular, he knew its relative value. It was worth far more than everything else that he had. And the merchant's the same. He sees the beauty of that one pearl, and he knows that just that one pearl is worth far more than all his other pearls and all his other possessions. And when he sees it, in just a moment, he decides that he will liquidate his entire portfolio in order to acquire that one pearl. What both men stand to gain is worth far more than everything that they will give up. You come to possess the kingdom by seeing its relative value. Now, it's not that we buy our way into the kingdom. Rather, it's that living under the rule of Jesus is so precious that even if it costs you everything, it is still a happy trade-off. The missionary Jim Elliot captured it perfectly for us in his journal. Do you know this quotation? Jim Elliot wrote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There's someone who understood the relative value of the kingdom. Nothing else compared to it. Here's the quotation again. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You would be foolish if you didn't do whatever was necessary in order to get your hands on it. And so the man in the field who's found the buried treasure isn't moping about, complaining about all that he has to give up. Instead, it's with joy in verse 44 that he goes and sells all that he has in order to buy that field. And so the realization comes to different people in different ways. But here's the common factor. You acquire the treasure of the gospel when you grasp its relative value. Nothing else 
comes close to it in value. One last question to draw things to a close. We've thought about this treasure. We've thought about how you might get your hands on it. Finally, why does all this matter? Why is this important? And quite simply, the answer to that this evening is because of what we learn in the parable of the net, verses 47 to 50. It makes it very clear that our world is moving towards a day of judgment. As yet, we haven't reached that point. At present, at this moment, the kingdom is still like a net which has been thrown out into the sea and which is gathering up from the oceans fish of every kind. If you look back to the start of this chapter, chapter 13, you'll see that Jesus has been sitting on a boat on the Sea of Galilee with the crowds all around him. And there, as he preaches, it's as if he's casting out the net, not to catch fish, but to catch people. He's casting out the net in order to catch the minute as all those sorts of people are being gathered in towards him. And when Jesus called his disciples, his invitation was to come and follow him and to learn from him what it meant to be fishers for men and women. So at present, the kingdom is not like a fly fisherman who ties just one special fly in order to catch one particular salmon on one certain river. It's much, much more like this great dragnet, the kind of dragnet that would have been stretched out between two boats and that would have gathered up all sorts of fish. And in the future, At the end of history, when the net is full, it will be drawn to the shore and there the fish will be sorted and separated. When the net was in the water, you could only make out the fact that it was full of fish. When it was brought ashore, then it became obvious that there were different sorts of fish in the net. Good fish and bad fish. And the fishermen sorted the good fish into containers but they had no choice but to throw the bad fish away. This is teaching us the same lesson that Jesus was explaining in the parable of the wheat and the weeds earlier in chapter 13. And through it, Jesus is telling us about the nature of the church in this present age. And he's teaching us that the church here on earth will be a mixed multitude. There are those who profess to be part of the kingdom who actually don't know the king. You get the sense of it in words that Jesus said when he described people who were wonderfully orthodox. They came to him and they called him Lord. They were full of zeal and passion because they didn't just call him Lord, they called him Lord, Lord. They were people who were active and involved. They had done all sorts of things in Jesus' name. And yet Jesus said to them, although you've been close to me, although there's been some proximity between you and me, I don't actually know you. Those are the sort of people that have been described in the parable of the dragnet. All sorts of people caught up with the church here on earth, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they know Jesus Christ 
as Savior and Lord. So verse 49 tells us that there are two sorts of people in the net. There are those who are righteous because they've received the righteousness of the king. And there are those who looked good, but who turned out to be evil. What was the great evil of these people? Simply this, although they were swept along in this life with the church, although they were caught up with the church and all its life and activities, these are people who don't actually trust Jesus and who will not have them rule over them. It takes us back to the idea of relative value. You see, in this world, it is relatively straightforward and easy to work out that the kingdom of heaven has some value. A man might stumble upon treasure in a field, know it's worth a lot, but then when he counts the cost, he might decide that it's simply not worth the price of having to give up everything else in order to get the treasure buried in the field. A merchant might pick up the pearl and realize that what he was looking at was something which was really valuable. But then when he thought about all the other pearls and riches that he had, he weighed things up and he decided that the pearl wasn't so beautiful that he would be willing to give up everything in order to acquire it. There's no doubt that amongst the vast crowd that gathered by the Sea of Galilee, there were people listening to Jesus who were intrigued, others who were curious, people with many different questions, people attracted to Jesus in some way. But some, as they heard him, saw the value of his kingdom and of its king, and they realized that it was of value greater than anything else in this life. Other people saw Jesus and listened to him. They were drawn to what he said, but they didn't think that he was more valuable than anything else. So many people would love it if we could have it both ways. If we could keep everything and yet have the treasure of the kingdom. But that's not how it works. Why not? Well, we can't take hold of Jesus by faith. If the hands, as it were, that we bring to him are tight-fisted, clinging on to other things, the principle is very clear. You have to decide what is most valuable and act accordingly. So there's a great warning here, a real warning in these words to us. It tells us that in this life, there are people who come so very very close to gaining this treasure, but who haven't got it because they haven't been willing to let go of other things. In all of this, the stakes could not be any higher. Jesus, for a second time, tells us about the fiery furnace of divine wrath, about a hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, many tears, but no tears of repentance, just tears of lamentable weeping, of frustration and bitter regret. And so we close with Jesus's question in verse 51. He turns and as it were says to us, have you understood 
all these things? Do you really know what these parables mean? I pray that we would all know the joy of discovering in the gospel of Jesus Christ something of life-changing and soul-satisfying beauty because there simply is no treasure in this world that compares to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as our Savior and Lord and our greatest treasure. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we ponder these things together, we want, as it were, to weigh things up, to count the things which we place value in in this life, and then alongside it, to consider the value of the gospel of your Son. Lord, please open our eyes. Open them either in just a moment or open them after a long journey of searching so that we see that the treasure of the kingdom is worth more both in this life and the world to come than anything else. And in response, may we with joy give up everything in order to know Jesus and follow him wholeheartedly. And we pray this in his name. Amen.